Welcome to the Value Investor TV podcast. This is a podcast that helps you grow your wealth and become financially independent. My name is Becco and my partner, Hari. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, episode 27, we'll cover the later half of the checklist we didn't get to in the last episode, 26. In the last episode, we talked about, in the last two episodes, um, episode 25 and 26, in 25, we talked about what is checklist overview? Like, So what is in the checklist? Uh, why do we use it? Who uses it? Stuff like that in the very high level perspective. And in 26, the episode right before this one, we actually covered what we use, our own checklist, and what's what's in it. And because checklist is pretty comprehensive, our list is pretty pretty comprehensive, I'd say, uh, we have to break it up into two. So the last episode, we cover the first half, and then this half, uh, will be and the later half will be covered by this episode. So if you haven't checked out 26, please do so before coming to this one, because this episode is a continuation of 26, episode 26. So let's just uh, just dive right into 20, uh, 27, episode 27. So the later half of the of the checklist that we didn't get to cover, the la- let me just touch on the larger financial larger questions. So that is. How sound are how sound sound are their financials? Or, sorry, are they healthy? Um, do they have a healthy balance sheet? For example, that's one of the questions. Another one is: Is it ran? Is the company operated by honest and competent people? That's another larger question that we need to answer. And then the last question that we need to answer is: This is all great, but is it is it on the market for appropriate price? Am I am I willing to pay the price? For this entire company, is it cheap enough? Effectively, that's the last bundle of the que- bundle of questions that we need to answer, and that's that's part of this that's part of this checklist. So let's just dive right into it. Um, so let's go into the financials. Is the company in healthy financial situation? Is the broader question. To dig deeper, we have a few questions listed on our checklist. Let's go to the first one. Does the company have enough cash to maintain its business? So why do we need to care about that? And, and why is it important in this valuation? Yeah, so... It, it, yeah, sorry. In, in understanding the financial health of this company. Yeah, when you look at that, you have to think about it from the perspective of... <clears throat> remember, you're running a business, right? The, the thing that kills businesses is that they run out of money, right? And so if they run out of money, then they can't operate anymore. So what we're trying to do is prevent these questions are really asking what's going to blow this company up, mm-hmm. right? If they have to go and shut down operations and sell off a bunch of assets, that's obviously not ideal. So, you know, it, it's not just, you know, the first thing that you should really be thinking about is, you know, do they have access to cash or do they have cash on the in the um, in the bank to allow them to, you know, do the things that they need to do to operate on a daily basis. Right. And what you see is a lot of companies that can't do that will declare bankruptcy or have, you know, will have a uh, uh, a liquidity, you know, crisis, and then they will go into uh, crisis mode and, you know, the stock will tank and all of these things that occur, you know, as a result of basically not having enough working capital to meet the day-to-day operating needs of the business. So, um and we've left this question deliberately vague because that can be mean different things for different businesses. So some ca- companies have negative working capital just 
as a result of how their business is structured. So don't use that as a pure, uh, if they have negative working capital, you should run away. But you should investigate and see, you know, they have their cash balances are running low and they've been, you know, negative for, you know, net negative for several years. Then you should start worrying about, well, is this going to, you know, take the business out? Right. Um, so I think your larger question of is, are, so these questions are really aimed at what you said, which is, are any of these going to take out the business entirely, right? Yeah. And so not not having enough cash balance is one way to go, one way to end the business. Yep. And I think I think it's important to point out that um a lot of um a lot of companies now as we analyze, we talked about this in the previous episodes, as we analyze companies now every day, we run into a lot of companies with a lot of debt level, a huge huge debt level. And that's yep. one of the questions that we'll cover here, but uh, uh it relates to having not enough cash balance on on the book. You know, if if that if that's the case, you know, you're not able to pay out the interest payment with the operating uh, income, and you have to dip into the cash balance, and the cash balance is low. It, it all paints a very negative picture. So, so let's let's move on to the the second question, which which is something that I that I just mentioned. Does a company have does the company maintain reasonable debt level? Yeah, and this one is something that will tie into the next question also with and with regards to cash flow but you know if the company has like we said earlier too much debt is what kills businesses right it's not you know you can have declining sales and things like that but that if the company is profitable will they can maintain themselves for a long time the problem comes in is that when you over leverage and you put too much into your debt uh, load <clears throat> So what I typically try and look for is companies should have enough cash flow, so enough money that they generate to be able to pay off their all of their debts in three or four years. Now, that doesn't mean they have to pay them off in three or four years or that they have a plan to pay them off in three or four years, but that they should, you know, it should be roughly three times your free, three to four times your free cash flow uh, uh, number. And why that's important is, and uh, you know and this this question is very loaded because you, you what you want to also see is um you know companies have certain debt covenants um that allows the person who has uh or a group that has loaned the money if they don't maintain certain ratios they can call in the debt and what that means is that let's say the the debt covenant is your earnings have to be three times you know the debt level which is not uncommon or you know you have to be able basically to pay off the debt in three or four years three or four uh yeah three or four years um if you can't if the debt level grows to be much higher then they can say well we want our money now and that means that your what looks like it will be you know far out into the future could be you know triggered can, you know, can destroy your business tomorrow right. so you want to be very mindful of that so that doesn't mean that every business you have should have no debt, right? That That is not, you know, carefully managing debt is, is important. And, you know, especially when you deal with companies that have large international uh, presences, it's not free to move money between cash from one place to another. So they may actually take on debt in that country just to finance the operations there, even though they're, they're generating cash. Um, they have tons of cash elsewhere, elsewhere right? Yeah. So... You know, just be mindful of that because it's, and so I mean, reasonable is a you know is a 
loaded question when you know when we say that um, because there are some companies that can have you know longer you know higher debt loads just because of the the nature of their business right and I think what you mentioned earlier about debt to free cash flow less than or equal to three is kind of what you look for um, so that I just wanted to clarify that so when Hari says the company is able to pay off with this free cash flow all of its debt that basically translates to the debt to free cash flow ratio less than equal to three. Yeah. Um, so for those of you out there who are wondering what that means, uh, you can look at that number. Debt divided by free cash flow equals uh, or less than or equal to three. Okay, great. So that sort of answers the larger question of how healthy is, is this company financially speaking. If we move on to the next question, I think this question is harder to answer but certainly not 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 important it's very very important to answer and that question is is the company operated by honest and competent people well um so let's let's just uh answer one one more thing about the uh before we move on about the the free cash flow aspect of it um you know can the company generate a strong amount of free cash flow from operations you want to you know just to add to this the stability of that cash flow is very important, right? So if a business runs out of, you know, things are looking well and then they, you know, I mean, look at like GameStop today, right? A lot of the sales of games are not physical anymore. They're moving towards digital and that's eating into their business. They still generate a free cash flow that's solid, but can they do so in the future? Right. So that's the question that you want to ask is, is it, yeah, the number may be high now, but is it stable going right. into the future? Right, right. Stable and, and yeah, predictable. Yeah. Great. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next bundle of questions. Yeah. The the question of is the company operated and operated by honest and competent people? I think those are the two exact adjectives that Warren Buffett uses and Charlie Munger uses to answer this question of you know, the management question. Right. So let's let's dig deeper into that. So the bullet point, sub bullet point of the management question uh, is: Is management properly incentivized to protect shareholders' interest over its own? So I, I think the the importance of this question cannot be understated. <clears throat> so why this is so critical is, you know, Charlie Munger has this thing about the power of incentives is one of the most powerful forces in you know in human psychology and incentives are such an important part of how people operate right and so you know for the most part people are not very rational human beings are not very rational but when it comes to their money if you incentivize them properly and the incentives are clear they will do what's best for their own financial interest right and that means what you want to see out of a business is is the investor, the, the the person running the show, um, CEO, COO, are they properly incentivized to do what's best for the company or are they properly incentivized to do what's best for themselves? And are those two things aligned, right? They should be aligned and that should what that should tell you is, so, I mean, the classic example is, you know, the CEO is the founder of the company and owns a significant share of the company right and when you see that you think about bill gates you think about mark zuckerberg you think about 
people who have invested not it's not just a financial stake but it's also a, an emotional stake right this is their baby they've created it they've sacrificed you know done all of these things nobody believed them at first now you know look at them they've you know done this stuff that the reason that's so important is they're not going to do what is bad for shareholders because it, it hurts them you know it hurts yeah. the ceo it hurts the the, yeah. the large uh, stakeholder now there's a couple of things that you need to be careful about in the case of um certain stocks they have share classes that are different for common shareholders which is what you would probably buy and preferred shareholders so you want to make sure that the shareholders are are aligned too right if there's multiple structured uh share structures um so that's one part of that but the the other thing is you know, I, I've seen it in almost every case when I invest in companies. I find all these great businesses with high returns on capital, with all of this stuff. And then I'll find, I'll get to the part about management. And almost always the management is the founder of the company, um, is the CEO who owns a, a significant chunk of the company, or and his or her own net worth represents a large percent you know is is represented in that company so they are heavily invested in the success of the company and so i'm comfortable investing alongside them now you look at it from the opposite perspective you have in you know and this was common in the 2012 2013 um oil and gas ceos were paid by the number of barrels pumped right so what they what they did was they looked at it and said well uh, Oil is at $120 a barrel, pump away. Uh, everybody makes money. You know, the more barrels you pump, the better you do. Well, then 2014, 2015 hits and oil drops to $30 a barrel. And the CEO looks at his own incentive structure and says, pump away. Because every barrel I pump, if I hit these targets, I make money. Doesn't care what the company does. Um, his CEO, this, you know, his incentive structure doesn't, you know, affect that. So you want to make sure that they are incentivized appropriately. So they're, they're, um, because a good CEO deserves a very high salary and, and they deserve, um, you know, money. Uh, but my, my, my favorite examples of, of these are, you know, guys like Robert Pera of Ubiquity Networks doesn't collect a salary. I mean, he owns 70% of the company. Uh, as far as I know, his entire net worth is really tied up in, you know, Ubiquity Networks, I think he owns the Memphis Grizzlies too, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, is probably worth, you know, some percentage of his net worth too, sure. but a large percentage of his own net worth is is in this company. And, you know, he does what's in the best interest of shareholders because he is a shareholder, right? Yeah. Shareholder and the operator them itself, themselves is one and the same. Yeah. So that's really important to uh, to underscore. I also think uh, it's important to highlight that the incentive structure is 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 crafted and kind of passed down from the board of directors. Yeah. So in the board of directors, if you look at the structures, I think you could talk about that here in a bit. If you look at the board of directors, there's different committees. There's compensation committee. There's executive committees. All these different committees and the board of directors, and the board of directors get together and say, okay, we think the best way to run the company and the best way to incentivize the operators, best way to protect the shareholder is to do this and this and this in terms of compensation. And that compensation is what CEO tries to aim. Yep. So, um, so to, 
to answer this question, is management properly incentivized to protect shareholders' interests over its own? You not only have to look at the operator themselves, the CEOs and the CEO, COOs, but also the board, board of directors and how, uh, what the community is about, you know, the, the incentive structure is going back maybe two or three years looking at that. Yeah, you know, one of the things that to be careful about is a lot of times what happens is the CEO is appointed by the board, uh, which is how, you know, every Delaware corporation is supposed to function. Um, and then what happens is that the CEO will, so this is a hired gun CEO scenario. The, they don't have own a lot of stock in the company and that kind of thing. And what they do is they go back and they say, well, I got to make sure my, my board who brought me in is well compensated too, right? And so then you're what you're doing is you have this horrible, you know, cyclical relationship yeah. where they don't really care about the company, right? Which is... Uh, against their own fiduciary duty, right? I mean, this is illegal um, under uh, under uh, U.S. corporate law, you know, uh, and Delaware laws. You are not allowed to do that kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean it stops people from doing yeah. so. And and you'll see this a lot where board of directors are, you know, especially for older companies where this, the original founders are gone um, and it's not owned by, you know, it's, you know, nobody owns more than, you know, 0.5% of the company. Um, they don't really care, right? I mean, they, they, what they will do is end up, uh, patting the back of the board yeah. of directors and the board of directors will pat the CEOs yeah. back. And then you get this unholy relationship of, um, you know, they're out for themselves and yeah. not for, for the, the interest of the shareholder. Right. You want to watch, watch out for those, those incestuous relationships that can really damage the shareholder value. Yeah. Let, let's move on to the next question, uh, for this management question. Uh, has management handled excess capital in a shareholder-friendly way? Are share buybacks and dividend payments appropriately timed based on current price per share relative to value? Yeah. So let's talk about that in more in detail. So this actually ties into the previous question, right? Sometimes you you know a company is is one of these hired gun CEO mentalities. That doesn't mean the CEO is a bad person, right? And this one way to test how successful the CEO is, is do they use their money effectively, right? And so, um, you know, we talked about free cash flow as basically being money that is no longer needed in operations that can be distributed to shareholders. There's three different ways of distributing money to shareholders. The first is to reinvest it in the business. And that reinvestment is important because it's tied to growth of the company, right? You're going to expand operations. We're based in U the U.S. and we want to expand to Europe. It's going to take a lot of money to do so, right? So that capital expense is a an important part of the process, right? But what you want to know is if you're in a business that has a high return on capital, then you want them to invest back Absolutely. in the business. Yeah. If it's a crappy business, right? Let's say. <clears throat> putting it back into the same business is yeah. not a good idea. I mean, think about it from the perspective of like Macy's, right? Macy's is an old stalwart business, right? It's extremely profitable, makes a ton of money, but growth is not something that it's going to, uh, you know, do, right? So uh, trying to expand the store base is not necessarily the right, you know, approach. Um, even though it does generate high returns on capital, they are, you know, they have to actually shut down stores probably to maintain the level of profitability that they had. Um, 
So is investing more money back into the business a good idea? And the answer is probably no. Um, so then at that point, you have a you can't grow the business or you can't grow it much or you have more money than you can reliably put into growth. So what do you do with it? Well, there's two two places you can put it. One is, well, three really. You just keep it in the uh, on the balance sheet, which is not helping anyone. Um, and that's a bad place uh, for it to go. The other is to pay a dividend. Um, and so as a shareholder, dividends are a way to, you know, a lot of people like reliable dividends because that you know keeps the company stable. And for you know various trading reasons, um, you know short sellers avoid not necessarily avoid, but uh, don't really like to pay uh, have you know short stocks that have dividends because they're required to pay the dividend also. Uh, and so that limits that. So you don't see huge swings in prices, uh, which is why some people like a dividend. The problem with a dividend, though, is it's a taxable event. So if I get paid a dividend, it's taxed at ordinary income. It's not uh, capital gains. It's it's a ordinary income. Uh, and so that means it's taxed at a higher rate of, you know, 30, uh, well, I guess it's now 27% uh, at, at the highest level. Um, so when dividends are taxed at a higher rate, that generally means that um, is it in the, your best interest? Because you've already paid taxes as a, at a corporate level for that, and now you're paying it again at the, the at a personal level. So the the alternative is, and that doesn't mean that dividends are bad, right? You know, sometimes you want to pay a dividend, but you don't want to do it at the expense of the business, right? So there are some companies. Um, GE is a good example that's been paying a dividend for forever, and they l- recently suspended the dividend because of liquidity concerns. So they they were saying we don't have enough cash to pay the dividend, and they slashed it to just a penny a share. Yeah. Um, so, you know, is there best use of capital to pay the dividend, or is it to pay off their debt? Right, and th- and that that tells you that people make mistakes all the time with this because they under or overestimate their own cash flow and and things like that. So the other alternative is actually to buy back shares, right? And the buyback is actually a very interesting idea, right? Is, you know, we talked about this with the debt and equity uh, lecture. And, you know, um, if you, you know, you should go back and listen to that. Um, if, if you, you know, if, if the, sh- you know, share count doesn't make sense to you, but essentially what you're doing is shrinking the pie so that every investor who has shares, their share actually is a larger piece of the pie. So let's say I have 100 shares in my company. I retire 50 shares. That means I remove them. That means that my in, my income, my earnings per share actually doubles, You know, assuming that the net income stays the same. So a great example of this is a company uh, is AutoZone. So AutoZone, I think, has retired you know, 70 or 80% of their shares over the last seven or eight years. So they're, they're a company that has limited uh ability to grow i mean they're a u.s based company you know they sell auto parts and they're pretty much in every town that they could possibly be in and so they said well we could pay a dividend which i'm not sure if they do i can't remember um but they've they've heavily bought back their shares and and so they were able to um you know do that but the the important caveat to share buybacks and this is something that people all the time uh, will forget is that when you buy back shares, you have to do it when the stock is undervalued, mm-hmm. 
right? And by doing so, you actually buy, you know, it's a, it's a double effect, right? You can, if I'm paying, you know, 50, 50 cents on the dollar for a stock, then it's a good, you know, it's a good investment. But if I'm paying a dollar 50 for a dollar, it's not a good idea, yeah. right? So a good example of that is, you know, GNC uh, was a, uh, you know, general nutrition center. They have vitamin stores and, you know, general nutrition items. Um, so they were buying back shares at $65 a share and the stock tanked to $8 a share. Um, Total destroying value. I mean, yeah. And so if they had actually waited till the stock had dropped, I mean, and the dumb thing is they actually took debt to do this. Yeah, that's incredibly crazy. I mean, that's right. so destroying value in multiple ways. Yeah, so you take on debt, which is not necessarily a bad thing um, oh if, if you need to do that, right? But taking it on to do a share buyback is should tell you that there's some concern, right? And they did this basically, uh, you know, as we talked about management incentives, to juice their the share price, right? And they, if you look at their incentives, it was to raise the price of the stock. Yeah. And so they, the, everything was based on that. And so they figured the best way to do that is Just. saturated business lets buy back shares, even though this stock was trading at 25 times earnings. Um, and so, you yeah. know, it, it blew up in their face. Yeah. So let me just recap that for for our listeners here. So the, the question was, has management handled excess capital in a shareholder-friendly way? And Hakari mentioned there are different ways to handle that excess capital. One is to reinvest that excess capital back into the business. The other is to pay out dividend payments. And the third is to, to actually do to, to buy back its own shares. Yep. And there are different, you know, for different... For companies in various different stages of their lives, you know, one is more appropriate than the other. For different times in the marketplace, one is more appropriate than the others. And so it's really prudent. For a prudent prudent management, they're taking all that into consideration for the for the interest of shareholders, not not just themselves. And 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 the optimal way to to see that is if their incentive is properly aligned with their shareholders. Yep. And if it is, they'll do what's right for the company and what's right for you as shareholder. And as I said before, they're different, you know, for investing and, and dividend payment and, and buyback, they're these are appropriate at certain times and, and not appropriate in, in others. Yep. So it's important to realize that when you're analyzing companies and analyzing the management's performance. Okay, let's move on to the last question, which is is management open and honest? I think this is kind of a kind of a hard question to to nail down, but certainly not 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 an important one. It's it's quite important to 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 uh, answer this question. So, is management open and honest? Can you tell us more about this question, Harry? Yeah. So again, this is a open ended, difficult question to answer. But I think what you want to see with management is in good times, it's easy to tout the success of the business, right? But in bad times, how do you how does a CEO and management respond to that? And you know a lot of the times, you know, they can be honest with you and tell you, "Look, you know, our business is changing. People are not coming to the store like they used to be. Uh, we need to make changes," right? Or they can say, "Well, you know, things are okay. We're, you know, you know, we had, you know, we had flaws here. We had, you know, we had some missteps and you know, so the more euphemisms that they use, the more, you know, um, indirections that they use, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff, it's 
be blunt, be direct, and tell it, tell it like it is, right? And if, if you have a CEO who says, look, we did a terrible job, um, you know, this was all on us, we need to, you know, change the way we're, we're going, as opposed to the thing that everybody hates, and, you, you know, you see this with corporate, uh, you know, uh, corporate relations kind of PR, like we're trying to mitigate the disaster that this is. You know, they kind of use all these terms that nobody likes to hear. Just say, just say it, right? You know, I mean, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that they told us when we were in uh, medical school is when you make a mistake for a patient, right, you can be direct and open and honest, and people will actually respect that and won't sue you. You know, the, the malpractice is usually when people don't hear and understand what uh, what you know, and you you kind of cover up what's going on. People hate that more than anything else. Yeah. And so when management does something like that, which is they're not open and honest about things, and and then you start finding out about things later or through other channels other than the management, then you know it's it's really a trust issue. Are can I trust what these people are saying, right? And so it's hard to do that because all of these statements are very carefully you know uh, choreographed, right? Um, but it's still nonetheless an important part of, you know, evaluating a company. Absolutely. I think another way to assess that, I mean, that's, I think that's a really good way to assess the honesty of, of a management, of, of a management, you know, in, in the bad times, how do they react? But also another good way, I think, is to look at how they, uh, what they promised and, and if they didn't deliver, for yep. example, even in the good times, if they, if they didn't reach their goal, you know, what is, you know, what, what do they say about that? Yeah, you know, if they are able to consistently reach their goal every single year, and and and, and kind of a side note, in analyzing company, you want to look at you know multiple years of performance and multiple years of management uh, saying, oh, we will deliver X and Y next year, and and looking at that every single year. Yeah, if they're able to do that consistently, and and, and really be honest about that, that's another way to look at this. You know, I I think if you want to see, you know. I, a good example of people being open and honest. I think Warren Buffett is, you know, by far one of the best examples of that. Read his shareholder letters. Um, <clears throat> another less, you know, well-known example of that is uh, Robin Reyna of uh, Ebix. Um, so the stock ticker is Ebix, E-B-I-X, and you can look up and read his conference call transcripts. What he will tell you is, these are my aspirational goals. This is what I set out to do by a certain date. And in almost every case, the guy um, will give you an update. You know, he, he may give you a, a goal for two years from now, and then he will, every single uh, subsequent conference call will tell you about how they are moving towards that goal. Yeah. And so, um, you know, he's laser focused on these things. And he's an example of a CEO who I would, you know, I don't even care. You know, it, I mean, he mm. could convert you know the entire business into selling tacos and i would be like whatever you the guy clearly knows what he's doing just i'll just shut up and here's take my money you know <laughs> so um you know but and and sometimes i mean that's very rare right mm -hmm. i would never you know I, I i only know this because i've been invested in this company for so long but it's a rare feat to see that you know most ceos are scumbags because they get to be their at the top of uh, the food chain by being scumbags, right? You know, they're charismatic. They are people who are, you know, are, um, you know, they're there because not because of their ability, but because of their ability to talk, right? 
And that's a really important distinction. You know, when you look at a hired gun CEO is did this guy work in the business and make his way up or, and this is applies he or she, I should say, um, or is it someone who came into the business? I went to, I got an MBA and now I'm, you know, smarter than you are, mm-hmm. right? That's a very important, you know, component of this mm-hmm. um, because people who've worked in the business know what's going on with the business. Oh, yeah. I also want to, I also want to, uh, because you mentioned that, I also want to mention this book, Outsiders. It yeah. talks about that a lot, actually. Fantastic book. So it's eight, C- eight or seven CEOs that this book covers, and it basically says, these are these are not these are people who are not in the limelight. These aren't people who are touted in the in the media as the best CEOs ever in America, et cetera, et cetera. These are CEOs who are, you know, in the shadows doing their own thing, but are able to to really allocate capital in the in the most effective way for shareholders. That if you look at their track record of operating a business, you can see stock price is up and to the right for about ten years, just straight. It's, you know, hundred bagger. I think. Yep. Talks uh, about the same thing. Yeah. So, I, and I mean, a, a good example of that is we have a distorted view of the world because of the way what the more media portrays. Um, and you know, the outsiders talks about the success of a CEO is actually tied. It the the yardstick to measure a CEO is what are their sh- returns for shareholders over a long period of time, mm-hmm. and. You know, they talk about that, like, you know, Warren Buffett is one of the CEOs and he's delivered 20 plus percent, you know, return for 40 years, right? I mean, you put in $10,000 and it's worth, you know, multi-millions at the end of that. Um, So you using that yardstick, right? You know, everybody's heard of Facebook. I don't know how many people have heard of Ubiquity Networks. They both IPO'd at around the same time. So Robert Pera has crushed Mark Zuckerberg in terms of return for shareholders. Um, and that, that is very telling of, you know, the, um, the quality of the business and the, the focus of that CEO. And if you listen to him, I mean, he's not, you know, Zuckerberg is very charismatic. Robert Pera is a, is speaks very well, but I wouldn't call him, you know, charismatic <laughs> and I'm, I'm not as an insult. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think he is, yeah. he's a, he's very much engineer focused sure. and that, translates into very successful business and you know I, I think i don't know if he personally likes you know the limelight or anything like that yeah but i mean you look at how he behaves you know he you know he's famously quoted as saying you know when he bought the memphis grizzlies that you won't see me at the games because i'm not people come to see the basketball not to see robert para right, right? and i think that's a really telling thing is you know, you that's the kind of stuff that you want to look for. Is right. is this guy focused on the business or is he focused on his own ego? On his, yeah, his limelight and his fame. Okay. I think that's that's enough uh for the management question. Becco's telling me to shut up. So. <laughs> Let's move on to the last leg of this of this checklist, which is the valuation. Again, the business can be great, the management can be fantastic, financials could be healthy, but if it's at a if it's too expensive, I'm not going to pay for it. Right. So this is, an, again, this is, we are, after all, value investors, and we need to look at the valuation. And again, this checklist goes in the order, right? So you need to look at all these things that we talked about previously, and then we we arrive at the last thing, which is valuation. Yep. So let's dig into that. First is, is there a significant margin of safety? 
margin of safety. Please yeah, so, take it away. So we're going to do a lot more on valuation in the next three or four episodes. So I don't want to spend too much time on, on these uh, these components. But I will talk about margin of safety because I think it's the most important, three most important words in investing as, as um, uh you know, as it relates to investing itself, right? Um, and as and that's not my words. That's Warren Buffett, yeah. uh, to paraphrase him. Um, Seth Klarman also wrote the book. Yeah, the book Margin of Safety, Margin of which safety. is out of print and very hard to find. But uh, if you have solid Googling skills, you may be able to find it. And it's worth the read. Yeah. Um, you know, the margin of safety um, concept is is essentially that if I have a dollar and I pay 95 cents for it, there isn't enough protection there in case that dollar that you know I think is worth a dollar is actually worth 90 cents, right? And in, in that case, I'm going to lose some money. But now if I pay 50 cents for that dollar, then there's if, if it's worth 90 cents, I still make money, right? And so what you're trying to really protect yourself against is, um, and I can't emphasize this enough, is there has to be a, set, a, a significant difference in the price that you're going to pay and the value of the company. Right. And if you don't have that, if the margin of safety is small, then you should be very wary of, you know, changes cuz these changes may not even be related to the business, right? right? They may be tariffs on a Chinese, you know, you know that are uh affected by, you know, uh the Chinese US trade war and that has nothing to do with the Chinese business other than the company operates in China, which you know, we're seeing a lot of that with Alibaba and JD and YY and all yeah. these other companies that are operating in China, um, but don't have really overseas operations or are limited in that uh, uh, scope. And then you see it in other businesses, um, you know, where there's a recession and it's a recession-proof business and it, you know, it declines. So you want to be very mindful of that margin of safety concept. And to be honest with you, it's probably one of my biggest mistakes that I make is I get enamored with the business. I get enamored with my checklist and then I get to the valuation and I say, yeah, but it's a solid business. And then I, I move on. Um, and you have to be really careful of that. Yeah. Right? I think another way to get, another way to paraphrase this is if you take care of the downside, the upside would take care of itself. Yep. So if you're protecting, if you're buying it for so cheap that there's really no, there's really limited, limited, risk that it'll go down further than the price point that you bought at then the upside is it'll take care of itself yep so if it, if it can't go down anymore then you're you're pretty safe in your investment yeah it's the compressed spring right you can compress a spring when it's very loose it's easy to compress it but when it gets to a certain point you just can't compress it anymore right, right? and the stock price is going to fluctuate significantly from the value for many businesses yeah. but it can't get too far away from it because then other people will come in and buy yeah. and that's how you compress that spring is it's al yeah it's also i think the spring analysis is interesting because it could go both ways yeah if you if you stretch it out way too far it has a tendency to go back to where it was right so it's that it and i think seth Kleiman or i don't know who said it but every company is on their journey to the intrinsic value whether right. it's low or it's high so i think it, the spring analysis is quite quite apt should we move on to the next question? Yeah. Um, Which is, can I reasonably estimate cash flows into the future, given what I know about the business? 
this kind of ties back to what we talked about earlier about being able to predict cash flow. We talked about this in the financial side of things. Yeah. Tell us about that a little bit more. Yeah. I think what you want to make sure is through your understanding of the business and what you know about the business, right? Um, Wrigley is going to still make gum in 10 years, right? So I can estimate that people are going to chew gum, right? Now, where they may buy gum, it may be at Walmart, but it may be on Amazon, whatever, right? But the fundamental thing is people aren't going to change you know, their behavior that way, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to still chew gum. Right. The difference that you want to be able to estimate is like Facebook is now, you know, is there going to be Facebook in the same way that they were, there was, uh, you know, the last few years, is it going to still exist the way it was in five to 10 years? The answer may be yes, but I don't know, right? I, I can't say for sure because the industry is so new mm-hmm. and behaviors in this industry change so quickly. Yeah. So, you know, I, Maybe they will, maybe they won't, or maybe they will, but it'll be in a fundamentally different way. Mm-hmm. Hard to estimate their cash flows into the future. Right. right. So, uh, and we'll we'll keep covering this as we th- go through valuation. Yeah. Uh, and and lastly, let's just cover this one really quick. Is it possible that? So this is another question. Is it possible that the downside risk here is unknowable? And does margin of safety provide an asymmetric risk reward ratio? Risk reward ratio. We kind of talked about it with the kind of talked about it with the the first question, the margin of safety. But I think this question is: it possible that the downside risk here is is unknowable? Yeah. So I, <clears throat> what 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 we're really getting at with this question is: let's say you operate a a business that is highly dependent on some, like say, government uh, regulation, right? So you have a business that is. Uh, a medical device manufacturer and Medicare pays for that device and they pay a hundred dollars per patient or whatever it is. And then one day they decide, you know what, we're not going to pay a hundred dollars anymore. We're going to pay 10. Right. So that changes the fundamental nature of that business. Right. So uh, what was protecting them, what was a moat suddenly became, you know, swallowed up the castle. Right. You know, they had a sinkhole that developed right below, you know, underneath the ca- the castle. So you have to be really careful about these these kind of businesses that, you know, some businesses are very, very difficult to breach their moat, right? And they're, but some, the downside risk is, in this case, is unknowable because maybe Medicare doesn't change their regulations. Right. Maybe they do. Uh, maybe they actually increase it and then it makes the moat stronger. But you can't know because that's out of the control of, um, you know, the company, right? And so when you have a lot of things that are riding on the businesses uh, that are out of the control of the company, then you have to be careful of that. Yeah. Out of the control, but it is essential for the for the business. Correct. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, do you have anything else to add in terms of this valuation side or the value or the value investor checklist, generally speaking? No, I think what we'll start seeing in the next... Um, two topics is more about valuation and valuation is complex. It's not something that um, it's a one number kind of measurement. So uh, getting comfortable with this is a really important part of what we're going to talk about going forward. So great. Thank you guys for listening. So that was, let's, let's just kind of large picture. We talk, we cover the financials. How healthy is this company? Financially speaking, we talked about the management. Are they, is the company operated by competent and honest people. And then lastly, is the company out in the market for for 
a price that I'm willing to pay. So those were the three large questions that we answered with this checklist. The later part of this checklist, again, if you haven't listened to the first part of the checklist, go ahead and check out episode 26. That's where we started. Uh, there we cover, you know, a, a thing, you know, things like a competitive advantage. We, co- we talk about moat. We talk about different relationships with the company. Please check that out before uh, you move on to the next one because I think the last, the last episode and this episode kind of ties in well together. So, um, so that is it for value investors checklist, our checklist. And again, I mentioned this in the last episode, but if you guys want a physical copy of our checklist, please go ahead and email us at info at valueinvestor.org. That's info at valueinvestor.org. Or please uh, follow us on Twitter or or uh, on our Instagram and, and message me directly, message us directly. We will be happy to share this with you guys. Okay. Thank you all for joining, and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you, guys. Thanks.